You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 155. Today our guest is Dr. David Scan, who is the Secretary General of the European Federation for Hunting and Conservation, also known as FACE. Uh, FACE is an acronym from French for European Federation for Hunting and Conservation, in case you're wondering. So you might think that this episode is about hunting and all about hunting and for hunters, but in fact, uh, we talk about many issues that are and should be interesting also for environmentalists and conservationists. Uh, not surprisingly, and this is one of the themes of this podcast where I try to highlight and show the deep connection um, between hunting, farming, uh, environmental sector. Uh, all those folks are working on the same thing and they really want uh, roughly the same thing, only disagree sometimes, uh, bitterly disagree on the methods, but at the end of the day, uh, that's we all want the same thing. So even if you're not a hunter, if you're an environmentalist, member of an environmental NGO, uh, farmer even, um, you, I'm sure, uh, benefit from listening to this episode. So we started the podcast talking about how hunting organizations communicate with non-hunting audiences. And that is a, a topic that uh, we dived in uh, quite a lot recently, both in the podcast and uh, through my newsletter and the blog articles. I see the changes coming and I see how hunting organizations start to recognize the need to change and change how they communicate. And, um, you know, I see the results of that. So we started uh, with talking about that and uh, that was very interesting. Then we dived into another very big topic, which is ban on lead ammunition. Um, so we discussed that, what FACE is doing to make that transition as um, least inconvenient, let's say, uh, and as smooth as possible. Uh, ban on lead ammunition is coming down the line, there's no doubt about it. So uh, we're not talking about how we're going to oppose and what can be done about it. Nothing can be done about it and nothing should be done about it. Um, about the lead, the ban on lead itself, but there are many things that can be done about it in terms of making it easier and workable um, for uh, really, you know, shooting community because sports shooting is a part of uh, uh, that and will also be affected by the ban on lead ammunition, which eventually will uh, spread across all the. Um, cartridges, all the shooting ammunition, including um, not even ammunition, but including fishing tackle. So that was uh, another big part of our uh, conversation today. And finally, we touched on 
nature restoration law. <laughs> That's an interesting one. And when we were recording this podcast, nature restoration law was about to be voted. Um, now, when you're listening to this podcast, the vote is already in. The nature restoration law passed, but like some of the um, environmental commentators noted, uh, it was gutted. But nevertheless, it's uh, better that way than the other. So we talked about that. And I want to take this opportunity and give you my view on the nature restoration law, because that was quite bizarre. Uh, you know that I deal with many controversial subjects on this podcast. And I'm not stranger of, you know, looking at uh, the, any controversial issue from both sides. And I usually am able to pinpoint a good argument or many good arguments on both sides on any controversial issue. Um, and uh, not this time. I found it very strange. Uh, and it seemed to me that, you know, uh, environmentalists, environmental sector, obviously ecologists, uh, environmental NGOs were supporting nature restoration law. Hunting community were supporting nature restoration law. Face, among the others, that's what we were uh, talking about uh, or will talk about. You will listen our, you will hear our conversation shortly. Uh, but also uh, energy sector, uh, renewables uh, sector, uh, businesses, like even big corporations, like literally everybody was supporting nature restoration law, except farmers, which I found bizarre and bothersome, like worrying, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm the, um, the guy who often presents the views of farmers as the legitimate ones, you know, like, uh, first that comes to mind, carnivore, uh, large carnivores reintroduction. Like the farmers have a good argument, but they don't like it and don't don't want it. And and I understand that. And and I I see all the sides. Like not this time. This time with nature restoration law, I couldn't find. I spent a weekend actually reading all the documents on the on the uh, European Commission website about nature restoration law. There is like a ton of them i haven't read all of them but i glance it through a lot of them and i read the the main um the main uh document and i also reached out to uh many farmers some of them who i know online some of them who i know in person um even to farmers in france and in germany and man i couldn't get from them any specific word like why they opposed nature restoration law or why farming organization opposed nature restoration law there was all like a vague statements like a lines from the like official like party line let's say but nothing um specific which i found odd uh and bizarre and i i didn't like the least the fact that farmers seemed to be you know like alone against everybody else in in this regard and I couldn't quite find out why. Um, anyway, that's already gone. Uh, well, it's not gone because there's going to be a lot of discussions about the amendments and other things of the nature restoration law. And then obviously we will have another round when it needs to be implemented on the country level. So I'm sure we're going to come back to this subject. Um, but for now, in this podcast, you will hear some of the 
rational from the hunting community, uh, which is kind of related to farming as well. That where why why nature restoration law uh, was and is a good idea. And by the way, if you um, listening to that and you feel like you can um, point me to the specific issues uh, that nature restoration law will cause uh, for farmers, then please please do. Um, do you send me those information? Because like I said, I couldn't find anything useful and I tried it or useful in terms of that would resonate with me. Um, anyway, uh, I'm not going to drag this introduction any longer. Please enjoy my conversation with David Scallon, Secretary General of the European Federation for Hunting and Conservation. David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you again. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Apologies if I have a bit of a husky voice. I'm My young guy has uh, started school and picked up a few bugs along the way, but uh, I think I'll be okay. Yeah, I've been listening to the podcast quite a bit lately. Thank you. I'll be amiss if not. I wouldn't say thank you for listening. And uh, no, you sound perfectly fine. And even if not, we'll fix it in post. So. <laughs> Uh, listen, David, there's a lot of things going on uh, in hunting and for hunting at the moment. I was uh, really want to talk to you about um, many things um, that hunters are interested in the context of Europe, because we always need to uh, make that distinction that when we're talking about face, we're talking about hunting in general in Europe, which is exactly what I, what I want to do. I'm going to start a little wide and broad and say that I noticed that I'm going to use this umbrella term hunting organizations. Okay. And like with all umbrella terms, some organizations are right in the middle of it and some are not under that umbrella, but hunting organizations, national hunting organizations, local hunting organizations, other hunting organizations. And people who listen to this podcast know like this is not a hunting podcast, but I'm a hunter and podcast is pretty much environmental conservation science, but hunting plays a role in this. Um, so I felt like to this point, those hunting organizations, they kind of fail to communicate about hunting to the wider audience. You know, I was kind of concerned that they failed to ensure the future of hunting. Not so much that everybody accepts hunting, but at least there's less people who disapprove of hunting. And recently, I noticed that probably within those hunting organizations, the penny starts to drop, that the communication about hunting needs to be a little bit different, needs to be adjusted to the times and to the audience, non-hunting audience. And, you know, even Face, like Face is, by the way, is very good at communicating, very measured, if not slightly boring, but very good. You have a new function, you have a new position open that you're going to talk about in a second about it. So I feel like this is a very good change in hunting organizations. But I'm just afraid that it might be a little, you know, too little, too late, like they say. 
so I'm, this is not really questions. It's just like this open kind of worms, and I'm just gonna let you elaborate on it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, just from the perspective of your listeners, so we're representing the national hunting associations in 37 European countries. We recently have uh, Ukraine on board, which is which is great. Excellent. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, and our job for the last 45 years is really to deal with the EU and international policy affecting hunting and conservation. So you mentioned, for example, our communications can be maybe a little bit, little bit boring. We're really geared up to communicate to the Brussels audience, and, and that is the main institutions, the European Commission and the European Parliament in particular. You know, our members really work within the capitals for this other institution, the Council. And then it's our members have this really important job of communicating with wider society. And that's something, you're right, national hunting associations have evolved really, I think, in I think in different contexts around Europe, and many of them are, are very old. We're just back from our members meeting in Bulgaria. They're celebrating their 125th anniversary. Wow. Um, and many of them are of, of, of a similar age, and they really evolved out of the need to protect and conserve the game. You know, um, the Swedish Association for Hunting and Wildlife Management, um, Swedish wildlife was in a very bad place. So the hunters got together and formed their association and set plans for the future. And now things are, you know, I would think quite good from a, from a large game perspective. And they really haven't been, you know, born to communicate to wider society. And we've been uh, discussing this a lot within FACE. We went through a process whereby we developed our uh, a new strategy for 2027. And we have an entirely new pillar of work. Uh, it's a pillar on society. So we have a new plan there to really deal with, um, well, assess, measure uh, what is the level of social acceptance of hunting, and then try to understand the different initiatives that are taking place around Europe that our members are doing to try to deal with this um, this this challenge of communicating to wider society. You've talked about this a lot on your podcast. Um, uh, it was very interesting to listen to one of your recent podcasts with um, Rob York, and we've uh, used him to help in some of our uh, discussions as well. And he's uh, he's super good at that. But um, it's really trying to get to a level whereby our members understand what other national hunting associations are doing. Uh, you know, lessons learned, best practices and they're uh, communicating better to wider society. I mean, for example, our French member is, uh, they have an ad on, on, on prime national television, you know, about, about hunting and the work hunters do in France. Hmm. Um, there's a new initiative uh, in, in Austria, for example, that's gonna help to communicate better about the work that hunters do. And a lot of the communications are around uh, either communicating on the conservation efforts that are in place by the hunting community or the kind of social or, or cultural contribution or economic contribution. Um, and there's some commonalities, of course, for example, um, we know why there's very high acceptance of hunting in Sweden, for example, and that's because, well, two reasons. One, if you eat game meat, you're much, well, you're, you're going to be favorable towards hunting. Um, and the other point is if you know a hunter, um, as well, so that's, and, and and this is similar in in other countries. 
So what we're doing, we have a, a position open now on our website where we're looking for uh, a person to really coordinate this work within our membership. So it's uh, a policy officer for um, social acceptance of hunting. Uh, and this is going to be an exciting project. You know, it's it's funny when you, it depends how you look and, and where you're looking um, at, let's, let's call it, what is the level of acceptance of hunting? And in some quarters, it, you can really think, is it doom and gloom? And in certain quarters, things can be, I think, much more optimistic. And one thing we've noticed is that actually, when our members are out there measuring social acceptance, they sometimes get surprised about how high social acceptance of hunting is. Um, and we have a recent survey in Denmark, it's about 90%. Uh, Estonia is around that too, um, Sweden and other countries, sometimes they take a different approach or they've asked a range of different questions. Um, and you have to kind of differentiate from, from, from the answers and put an average together, but, um, taking into account several countries that we've looked at, it's, it's above 70% and some countries it's, it's much higher. And that's, that's quite interesting. I think a lot of the debate is really one especially in certain countries where it's more of a political media debate and wider society is a little bit uh, either they actually don't have a view or you know they have a view that things are okay or some might have a view that well I'm not particularly in favor and then those that might not be in favor some will ac actively work against hunting and others will um, you know they might just you just accept they don't like it they don't engage uh and, and 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 that's that yeah no like it's never a situation that someone approves like everybody approves of something right there's there's that that would be um impossible to assume i'm delighted to hear that and you made a good point that some of those organizations were really not geared towards which is which is kind of like in line with my, with my observations that they were kind of like a, a little bit caught off guard like oh now we need to communicate and it's like oh how are we going to do this and uh, that's that would explain that. So that's that's uh, that's very good uh, to hear, uh, David. Is that effort? Is that initiative also includes communication with other nature conservation organizations, your wildlife trusts, your you know other um, organizations that let's say they're base members are likely to be anti-hunting or just not really knowing what's up, not interested, let's say, from not interested to to anti. Is that is that also part of that effort? So so the, for hunting organizations, you know, like I, I I love like recently in Ireland, I think Irish Deer Commission has a workshop together with uh Wildlife Rehabilitation Ireland, um, which Wildlife Rehabilitation Ireland, these folks were on my podcast, one of the first episodes, and the lady who was, I was interviewing, she goes like, only don't mention hunting, <laughs> you know, and now there we go, they're, they're making workshop together. So is that also part of this effort? Yes, in some countries. So I think there's, there'll be our role, which will be, you know, really getting a better understanding of what's happening in the different European countries and really getting our members, if they haven't done it yet, go and measure what is the level of societal acceptance of hunting in your country? And you can do that 
in a, in a way, okay, that can be a very expensive project, or you can do it in a way you use an omnibus poll and you, okay, you pay a, pay a few thousand euro and a company will be able to tell you, you probably need a sample size of this amount and we can do it in this amount of time. Um, and then, yeah, really collating the kind of good and bad practices from, from around Europe. Uh, and some of our members are doing very interesting things, um, you know, and some, for example, communicate on certain issues or campaign uh, with the classical nature organization, you know, including the BirdLife Partner state recently from the Danish, from our Danish member and the Danish BirdLife Partner combating illegal killing. Um, as, as an example, our Dutch member has talked about, you know, the return of the wolf with one of the main animal rights organizations in the Netherlands, you know. Excellent. Um, the debate was, was quite polarized there, but why not get get all voices into a room and try to thrash that out? Um, and it really depends on the issue. For example, you know, many national hunting associations are communicating about conservation issues within their particular country. So leaving aside the big stuff that's happening in Brussels now with nature restoration and that, but there's a range of conservation challenges in 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 European countries, and there's a lot of initiatives that have been with, by the National Hunting Association, uh, where they're supporting the the classical environmental organization, and that's helpful. Or else they will both be singing off the same hymn sheet, um, but not necessarily, you know, working side by side to address uh, biodiversity loss on farmland or to try to get some type of initiatives for wetland creation and management, um, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, there's a huge amount of different things happening. Uh, that goes back to, from the perspective of hunting, Europe is very diverse. Uh, and that's one of the beauties of hunting in Europe from a face perspective. That diversity is a real strength. Um, and it also makes our work um, very interesting. And in some parts of Europe, there isn't really struggles with between national hunting associations and your classical nature conservation organization. And in other parts of Europe, you know, further south, if you can think of bird hunting in some countries in the Mediterranean, um, there's a very classical conflict of the bird life partner being, you know, very much opposed full stop. Um, and, and, and they're constantly having a, a fractured relationship with the National Hunting Association. And they've, that's been kind of longstanding historical stuff. Um, so it really it's hard, it's hard to get that, right? Had to hard to hard to write that when it's like for for ages was the problem there. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, and it goes back to you know work on on social acceptance is you know has to take into account you know the particular country and even I mean how do you even ask the question in okay I'm Irish in Ireland you generally use the term. Call them field sports, but you have your classical approach of um, uh, your lo local gun club, mainly affiliated to the NARGC. You know, it's typically rough shooting for birds. Then you have a group of people into deer stalking. Then you have another group uh, in the Irish Coursing Club. Then you have another group of falconers. Then you have your hunting with hounds community. I mean, even trying to assess what is the level of social acceptance of hunting in Ireland? You have to, you have to, I think you almost have to pick a particular activity and try to take the question that way. That activity has certain um, nuances that another activity hasn't and how you try to approach that, um, you know, will be, will, will, will be slightly different to how you approach something else. 
one of the points I was trying to make earlier when I mentioned Rob York is that yeah, you know, it's a really messy world in terms of communication right now, in particular on Twitter. You know, it's it's very much kind of fractured, and people are very you know quite hardcore in their views, and there isn't space for a for a, a safe place in the discussion. And we've seen this in face on certain files over the years where it's you find yourself in a place where it's just it's an unfriendly place to 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 communicate um and social media was one thing that came out of the work we did we did during the development of our strategy we were 11 months working on this and we did a number of workshops uh with our board with our members um we we had a consultant even talk to key external organizations and 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 a lot of this came out. And when we ask our members each year, we do a survey, um, and we really get useful information about what are the big issues at national level? What do you think the big issues are that we should be working on? How important is this, is that? So for example, we always ask the question, you know, how important is social media, you know, for you as a National Hunting Association? And we just see it going like this over the years. It's increasingly important. And that means our members need to get, you know, more resourced to be able to take that discussion at national level. And that's a very difficult discussion to take, you know, and I can see it within our membership. Uh, often, you know, the National Hunting Association is is sitting back, but you have a few individuals that are, you know, championing the cause. Uh, and some issues are very, you know, I, I, I think they're quite safe if you're calling for, you know, better conservation policy on X or farmland or restoration, etc. But if there is an event around, um, for example, an incident around illegal killing, regardless of who was involved, you know, that can be really damaging and it can go in the wrong direction. So there's a few things that can be, you know, you can really have a storm within social media and it can be kind of out of control and then difficult to have that good place. So these are things that our members know that looking forwards, they're going to have to focus more on communication, be stronger at communicating, um, and I think be a little bit smarter. And this is one thing that we'll be doing within our, uh, that this person that we eventually recruit will be coordinating a lot of this work within our membership. And I think we'll have a series of workshops going, going forward in that. So, um, it's going to be exciting, um, no, I was delighted. I was delighted to see that. I was delighted. It was like, yes, that's exactly that's exactly what is needed. Um, that's a good news as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you're right. What you say that even like on a different country, there's like different language that people are using who are talking about their issues, and there there need to be like a people who are embedded in the culture of of particular country and particular you know issue. And know what language you use and so on. So this is really challenging for for you guys because it's like you know Europe has so many different cultures, different languages, and it all needs to be catered for the for the specific one. So so kudos and good luck with that job. Um, I'm gonna switch now to another aspect, another issue that is close to heart in many hunters, and it also affects the 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 public perception of hunting, which is lead, lead ammunition lead ban we we touched on this on our first episode and so where are we now what is the current state of play with regards to banning lead where is this going and is what is the face position on it 
Is it changed? Is it the same? You know, like where are we? There's a few different areas where lead has been looked at over the years. Um, the big one now is the REACH regulation. It's the EU chemicals regulation. And that is, um, that's a machine when it gets regulating um, a substance. Outside of that, you have the Convention of Migratory Species that has called for a ban on all lead and all ammunition. But there is a point there, it's up to parties of the convention if they wish to do this and, and how they wish to do this. Um, IUCN has dealt with lead in ammunition before, um, and that's largely been around wetlands and other areas of high risk. Um, and then in some countries, you know, for example, Denmark, Netherlands, Flemish part of Belgium, they have banned all lead shot for 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 hunting. And then in some countries, there's other bans for clay target shooting. And uh, there's some other initiatives taking place in some other countries, um, center fire rifle ammunition for hunting in Denmark um, is also being phased out. Now, the REACH regulation has a whole process set out in terms of how it regulates um, a substance. Uh, we had the restriction on lead shot over wetlands, and that was a real challenging one. And it goes back to some of the points I made earlier. It was really challenging to communicate on this, especially on social media. And this was something where a couple of decades supporting the phasing out of lead shot over wetlands and 24 countries did it. And they designed their rules in accordance with national conditions. And um, generally laws were understandable and, 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 and workable. And it came through that process of the European Chemicals Agency. So they develop an opinion. It has two committees, a risk committee, a socioeconomic committee. Uh, that opinion is sent to the European Commission. The European Commission develops its legal proposal. That's discussed in the committee with member states and the commission called the E-REACH Committee. And then it goes to a period of scrutiny in the European Parliament. Um, and it was unfortunate because we felt that this wasn't a clear piece of law. And we were of the view that you need to send this back to the REACH Committee and try to fix this because the definition of wetland isn't going to be clear. Um, and that was, I think in one way, it was an unfortunate process. Okay, the law has been adopted. There were some changes to it um, in, in you know, changes in terminology, change of the size of the buffer zone, etc. And now it's up to member states to try to make sense of it. <laughs> make sense of it. I mean, it's a regulation with direct legal effect. It's not like a directive where you have some scope to move. Um, and it's, it's, it's a challenge because the commission has said member states are best placed to issue guidance. But in effect, if you issue guidance and try to help to define what is a wetland and what is not, um, you may find yourself changing the scope of the regulation, which is illegal in the context of a regulation. And we've seen some member states try to issue advice, um, and we can already see the NGO debate is like, well, this isn't, uh, this clearly isn't in line with the text of of, of the regulation. So, uh, I think what most of our members are, are doing is really making Europe centres aware there is a new law in place. It has a buffer zone around wetlands of 100 meters. Be aware of this. Also, be aware of your carrying lead shot. Um, you have to be able to explain its use if it's not for hunting in wetlands or if you're passing through a wetland. Um, so that was, at the end of the day, only 52% of the parliament supported that. Um, and, and at the end of the day, there's a lot of communication around it. You know, one million birds being saved. Okay, you have Ireland, Poland, and Romania are the three countries that don't have laws in place and they need to get laws in place. Um, and then you have Slovenia. It's always Ireland and Poland together. I was like... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's personally funny for me because in all those things like Ireland and Poland are always like regardless they're together <laughs> so so they have to find a solution there and um you know I understand from our Irish member they're a little bit frustrated because um I think the government has set up a working group to try and find a solution to make it workable and the commission has said well and the court has said because it was challenged in the general court of the EU that a wetland should be a body of water. Um, it should be important for uh, waterfowl, probably migratory waterfowl. Um, and if it's very temporary in nature, well, well, you can think about that. Um, you know, and that's still a challenge because all dry peatlands are essentially included in this. Um, so I think it will be messy, and it's a little bit unfortunate because. Going back to your initial question, that process from the perspective of hunters, it should have been a very easy one. And we had no fear at all about there's going to be regulation on lead shed over wetlands. I mean, this is this shouldn't go wrong at all. And, and it kind of went wrong. And the process was a little bit funny in certain respects. And now we're in with the total lead ban. So this is going back several or more years ago when the commission wrote to the European Chemicals Agency, it said, prepare restriction on lead shit over wetlands and look into the wider impacts of all lead and all ammunition. Uh, and that's where we are now. That has been looked into. ECA has done its work. It's produced its opinion. Uh, it sent it to the European Commission in March. Now the European Commission is in the process of developing its legal proposals. So it's really a waiting game to see what the European Commission proposes. Uh, it's a tricky one. A no, starting at the very beginning, a complete ban on all lead for hunting is a challenge because you have certain calibers and certain uses that are tricky, including sport shooting. And that's why there's derogations in place for shooting ranges if you can recover lead or rifle ranges if you can uh, if you can use certain bullet traps, etc. Um, point two to rimfire is a very tricky one. So there's a five-year derogation with the review clause that you'd look at that. And we were at a very early stage wanting to understand what would be the socioeconomic implications of a full lead ban. Uh, we did a survey with a consultancy um, and it was sent to, it was opened by 100,000 hunters, but 18,000 replied. And it was remarkable. 25% of them said, we will stop hunting if there is a lead ban. And this was very surprising to us. And 25% said they would hunt less. Um, so the European Chemicals Agency wasn't concerned at all when we shared this report with them. They tend to look at countries like it hasn't been a problem in Denmark. Um, and then things can get a little bit more technical. You know, many would say, well, okay, you should look at countries that are part of the CIP and they're subject to different, the amount of pressure that can come out of a cartridge, whereas Denmark isn't, et cetera. Um, so the debate always tends to get very, um, get very technical. One thing we've been asking for over the years, because and how, how long we've, we've, we've been involved in this. And during the opinion making, we made five submissions to the European Chemicals Agency and they're available online, is really, this is going to, you're going to need time and you're going to need to approach derogation conditions in a way that's workable at national level. So generally for your, for your shooting ranges, um, some of the non-lead can be extremely expensive. So there's no reason why you cannot continue to use lead in shooting ranges. But the threshold that's in place in terms of derogation conditions now is incredibly high, and in many cases, it's a hundred. It's it's a huge economic investment for a shooting range, and they don't have that cash at their disposal. Um, so that's that's going to be it. I think a challenge going forward. 
uh, and to cater for countries like, okay, we're just back from Bulgaria, most of the shotguns would need some type of adaptation uh, or some of them a replacement for, for steel shot. Because, uh, you know, ECA's committees have said 18 months. I mean, 18 months is bananas to phase out all lead shot for hunting in Europe. Uh, so is it really going to need, this is really going to need time. And there's a way in which you can work derogation conditions for shooting ranges that don't have to either, a shooting range has to win the lottery or, you know, just, <laughs> just, just kind of put, put these conditions in place. So that's the challenge. And shooting ranges are different in different parts of Europe. So it's very common in the Nordic countries to have a, you know, a running moose target on a rifle range and to put the specifications to catch a bullet at the back of a running moose target range is, uh, is, is, is seriously expensive. Oh, I thought it was going to be easy. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, you don't really have the human health aspect when it comes to a shooting range. So you're just trying to, you know, you're just trying to uh, manage the risk and the sports shooting community has been doing a lot of work there and, you know, they've been active involved, actively involved in, in, in the discussion too. And you have users of shooting ranges, you have a, a estimates, about 4,000 shooting ranges around Europe. And then you have shooting ranges that are important for the more competitive type of sport shooting. Uh, and that's important because then, you know, you're, you're, you're in a delicate place about working with international rules and rules that are used for world cups and, and the Olympics and things like that. So exactly. that's really difficult. Um, and the other, but is it not something that face deals with, right? Face is not, is not in the business of like a sport shooting and stuff like that. That's outside of you, you, you know, like some, you sort of say you're not worried about this part or is it also kind of like a generates more work for you? It's, it's, it's come up a lot during this restriction on all lead and all ammunition. I mean, many of our members, um, some of them are also members of FITASC that represent sport shooting at that international level. Uh, and the big users in general of shooting ranges in Europe are hunters. Um, you know, they're frequently out practicing at the very early stage from the perspective of an exam, or they're kind of more casually involved in sport shooting, play, play target shooting within their local hunting club, etc. So you kind of like a by association involved in that anyway. Uh, we, we tried to help in terms of understanding what are the socioeconomic impacts of a lead ban on shooting ranges. And we, we've sent information to the European Chemicals Agency. Uh, one of the interesting things about this restriction is there's so many, there's a huge amount of knowledge gaps. And I can see this from a from a classical NGO perspective. It's so simple. It's ban lead, um, do it now. Um, and then you have the regulator trying to find a way to do that, that can work for, let's say, one example, sport shooting um that you have workable derogations for shooting ranges where 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 risk management and there's a lot of national risk management measures can be taken into account and that you have enough time for the ordinary hunter as i said the survey we did was very surprising what hunter said in terms of how many was in what in which way you thought it was like a high percentage you expected it to be lower i expected it to be lower many hunters in europe have been using lead for that's all they've been using. And hunters are very interested in in killing effect and, and, and ballistics, etc. And I guess there's a fear, there's 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 a kind of a socioeconomic fears. There's fears of okay, the costs of, of of 
shotguns uh, in particular, modifying them, concerns around even the ability to to, to test or, or check, you know, in some countries, from an insurance perspective, you know, you should go to a proof house. You may not even have one in a particular country. So there's all sorts of uncertainties that come around with a lead ban for for the typical hunter. And I think we picked we picked this up in this survey. Um, and we're a it's 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 a very ambitious thing to do in that no country in the world has a ban on all lead and all ammunition. Um yet. California has banned it for hunting, but not for sport shooting. Uh, and you can see Denmark led for lead shot uh, and, and, and also for rifle shooting. And then you have some of the, uh, you know, the regions in Germany on state-owned land, you have to use non-lead rifle bullets, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a difficult task for the European Commission to prepare a legal proposal that's going to be, uh, I, I think, you know, easily accepted by, by member states. It's not going to be easily accepted. That's for sure. That's for sure. But you know what? Like, I, I look at the results of that survey and I just was wondering, like, how many how many hunters, like, because we know, like, a hunters as a, as a group is generally getting older and older. And, we, you know, we also know, I think it's a, it's a fact that the older you get, the, the less you hunt. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, how many of, of them respond to the service, like, oh, this is just a convenient, you know, explanation where I don't hunt anymore. It's like, ah, because of a lead, right? It's like, bro, is that something that, you know, because you have this all this conversation about experience and this isn't me, this is like, oh, the best thing. And, and then such a thing like, oh, you know, you're not, you kind of like use lead. Oh, I'm going to stop hunting. So I think there's a lot of people who just, you know, how many times you're out hunting anyway in a year, like once a year, twice a year, right? Once every two years, and you're going to stop hunting because of that. You already stopped hunting. So I feel there was an element of that in, in that survey. Do you, do, you, do you feel that as well? Can you even comment on that and be like within yeah, that? I think we may have even asked that question. How do you consider yourself more active than the average hunter about average or less than average? Uh, and I think it came across in... Um, all of the channels, but that that is a point, and that is a, a concern that our members have. In that, um, the older hunters may not make that investment to adapt their shot, or let's say adapt or modify or even replace their shotgun. Uh, of course, they can use uh, bishmut or tungsten, but there may not be an appetite for that due to the cost of it. Um, so, of course, that dimension is there. But I think this came across. I think there was some some of the those that considered them to be very active hunters um, also were amongst this 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 view as as well. You know, you asked that question is interesting. Where 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 I think we're decades probably concerned about the age of of uh, of of Europe's uh, population of hunters. Uh, but even though membership, I think, in most associations is stable, in some cases decreasing, in some cases increasing. So, I mean, Norway is a good example. I think they have about 8,000 new hunters in recent years. I think probably by COVID, the quest for the outdoors, the quest for good food, et cetera, et cetera. And hunting is a good way to tick those boxes. You know what I'm missing with this discussion about the lead ammunition? What I'm missing is like why hunting organizations, and maybe, you know, it, it, it was suggested by face or not, I don't know. Like why I don't see a workshops or seminars with ammunition manufacturers 
with ammunition importers. And, you know, like, you know, this is coming down, right? Eventually, full ban is coming down. What are you doing about this? What are, what are your plans? Do you have all the, your non-lead ammunition developed? Like, what are the plans for, you know, kind of like a put the pressure top down, if you like, on, on ammunition importers, manufacturers to start doing something. I think that would change the conversation because that, you know, one would send a strong signal that there is a need for this sort of ammunition. That would also might, you know, make hunters a little bit more, you know, less worried about like, yeah, okay, this ammunition is coming down. We will have access to it, right? Because I think that a lot of this conversation is like about access to the ammunition. Oh, you don't have uh, 223s and your 245s and stuff like that, right? Oh, you, so availability of the ammunition is, as far as I'm concerned, a big issue, right? If all the ammunition that is currently in use would be available in non-lead variety, I think that the, the whole thing would be, you know, as simple as like ban it now with, with the caveats, but it will be much simpler. So, and, you know, this is not really the question, but more of a, my, my, my considerations. Like if I, if I were in, in charge, and I said it many times, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, don't have any influence of what hunting organizations do. Maybe I have through the podcast a little bit, but I, you know, as a, Let's do the seminar. Let's get the importers of the ammunition to the state. Let's get all your Hornadies and Sacos and, you know, Federals. And it's like, okay, do you have this stuff developed already? What is the plan? I don't see this happening at all. And I'm just wondering why. You're right. Communication on this is going to be difficult. Um, I'm not looking forward to when the file reaches the scrutiny stage in the European Parliament. Um, and for us, the space to talk about technical issues, transition periods, derogation conditions are going to be completely clouded by lead is toxic, ban it now, it's urgent, we have a zero pollution ambition. Uh, and it's going to be a messy place to try to talk to um, those that will eventually take the decision. Um, and your question about getting people into a room, I think this is... We've done this. Uh, I think other, others have done this too. Um, the European Chemicals Agency did this as well. Um, they had a stakeholder workshop. They have some information on their website where they got many of, they got the ammunition manufacturing, let's say, federation um, and other uh, large companies in Europe. Uh, and there's a bunch of issues coming out. And these are really kind of industry issues. But in one way, if the shops were full of non-lead ammunition that worked perfectly, then the debate on one hand is, is, is over. And the concerns that you see coming into this by hunters, is this going to be available? What's the price going to be? Is this going to be good enough? Uh, will it work? So for big caliber rifle uh, ammunition, for example, um, it's going to be fine with a bunch of calibers. It's going to be trickier with 0.243, which is quite a common caliber in Ireland for deer. And the UK, I see Basque has done some work on this, and there's issues around placement at 200 meters. Um, as I mentioned, the smaller calibers, there's there's a lot of big issues there. Uh, and then there's other points that come into it that um, we have seen during the workshop with the European Chemicals Agency. Um, so we're moving from lead, and then you go to steel. Okay, that's steel is the obvious replacement for lead in, in when it comes to shot. 
uh, and it's a roughly the same price, you have to take into account your shotgun. It's either going to be suitable, it's either going to be not suitable. If it's not suitable, it's going to have to be adapted or modified, or maybe even replaced, or then you use another substance. The other substance, let's say bismuth or tungsten, they're EU critical raw materials. So we've seen questions about about these. And the other, I think the elephant in the room that's be already been out in the media is the concern about the ability for Europe's ammunition manufacturing sector, which is producing both civilian and military, uh, to make this big switch. Because they seem to say this is a multi-million euro investment to switch our lines to non-lead. And at the same time, Looking at the EU uh, context, there's already a billion euro going into producing more ammunition for the war in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. So the timing of this is also really um, unfortunate. I think that's a huge job for the commission to take into account. Um, can the ammunition manufacturing sector deliver what's required? Because at the moment, we're 95% lead. We're only 5% non-lead. You switch that 95% to non-lead. When the ammunition manufacturer is uh, Europe's ammunition manufacturing sector is apparently struggling to supply enough for the war in Ukraine, uh, the timing of this is also very uh, unfortunate, and that needs to be that that needs to be factored in as well. But there are some of the issues that appear, and I, I think these have to be taken into account in the context of a legal proposal. If they're not properly taken into account, of course, there's going to be concerns. Um, and there was a huge amount of uncertainties during the process by the European Chemicals Agency. There's a huge amount of knowledge gaps. And we isn't, we're always asking the question, how are you even dealing with these knowledge gaps? And in many cases, and we knew it from the very beginning, their approach to risk is really zero risk. So they didn't even have to start. If it's two birds dying or a million birds dying, it didn't really matter for them. From a human health perspective, there's no safe limit, regardless that there is a threshold um, set by new regulation, etc. It is always going to be well, we're going to have to ban lead because that's how the whole reach yeah. work is yeah. done. So it's just how much time, how are your derogation conditions going to work? And there are some of the challenges that you read about the manufacturing sector that came up in the previous workshop, but we didn't have a war in Europe then we have now. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's all eyes on what the European Commission is going to do. But I, but I think that the messaging to hunters should be, this is coming down. This this is going to happen one hundred percent. I'm just I'm I think I'm right on that. You can comment on that. But I, I would say like this is this should be a message through the hunting organizations to the hunters to their members, guys, gals. This is going to happen. Just do whatever you can. Like when you go to your gun, like I'm I'm a big proponent of it. You know, like a small solutions at big scale. If every single hunter going to their to their gun shop was asking about non-lead ammunition. That then, that shop owner would add, ask their suppliers. And then 100 shop owners will add, ask the same supplier. And then that same supplier, and eventually, eventually, everybody is on the same page that this thing is going on and we need to look at that. I, I feel like some of the, especially in the smaller countries, some of the manu uh, ammunition manufacturers, they, they don't even consider that. And I'm missing this this pressure from from the from the down from the grassroots pressure instead of being like, oh, we're gonna be opposing and everybody will be opposing and the face will be opposing, rather than switch that to like, yeah, it's coming down. Let's do whatever we can to not be caught off guard once it's finally there. Would you do you think if this is a flawed way of thinking about it? 
No, I mean, my sense it's it's a matter of when and how, um, and that's that's what the regulator is going to try and uh, pr- produce now in terms of a proposal. Um, and yeah, that takes. I mean, I tried that in in my own local hunting shop in the west of Ireland when I was back home, and uh, there's no steel shot on the shelves. And uh, I bought, um, I wanted to test uh, non-lead for my uh, what 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 of my rifles, and um, it was funny. He put. Uh, he said, "Oh no, I, I only have these and uh, one brand. Ah, that's actually non-lead." He goes, "I, I didn't even know myself, you know." <laughs> it, it, it it was funny, but I. You know, so, but it's, it's um, as as I said, it's it's going to be uh, easier for certain types of uh, firearms and certain types of hunting, and it's going to be more challenging for other types of hunting, and that's going to depend as well. And this is the challenge as well: is to try to craft a legal proposal that can fit for Europe as a whole, um, which is which is a tricky one because countries are at different speeds. Um, and there's different types of hunting in the south of Europe where you have different concerns where they may not necessarily exist in, 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 in the west or the east, for example. Um, so again, that's the challenge of the of the yeah. regulator. That was always my beef with it, that one regulation for the whole Europe, it, it, it just can't work. But yeah, yeah, that was a good example that you gave, that they, they had a steel shot they didn't even know. So even the importance of that thing of having steel shot is is not really fully synced in um and, and that's that's that would be my my experience as well uh david i just want to switch gears a little bit uh before we wrap this up and ask you a question does face have any influence over specific national hunting organizations so in other words can you you know as face go into a particular country and say like hey what are you doing? You gotta, you know, fix some stuff. And I'm, I'm asking. You know, there's multiple examples. I, I, I have an example of Poland and France when there's a lot, a lot of problems going on with, for example, hunting uh, accidents. Which again, I'm always coming to the social perception of hunting, which is super damaging. And I'm just wondering, is that something that face leaves absolutely to to those organizations to do their stuff and clean up their act, or do you have any leverage over them? to you know influence at least or suggest of fixing the problems they have well our core job is to deal with the eu european um to extent international policy and legal context around hunting and conservation um but frequently we provide the service to our members whereby we get a question um we have a problem about um a proposal about certain type of um, firearm under a certain condition does this problem exist around Europe or there's a problem with hunting in a, in a national park in our country what's the context around the rest of Europe or what are the laws on um, sound moderators or, or certain optics uh, etc um, and we have very useful information in that respect and in many cases national problems can be I, I think really helped if if you have something, let's say, from the perspective of hunters, could be quite uh, could be quite a problematic proposal, or may even be a silly proposal. It's useful to know. Well, you know, no other European country has something like that in place. In fact, on the contrary, 
this is how this concern is dealt with from a policy or, or a legal context. But our members are really taking the, you know, representing the interests of the 7 million hunters at national level. Uh, and our members are, some of them really have uh, quite large capacity. We have surveyed our membership to check how many how many people are elected within our membership and how many people are employed within our membership. And there's over 70,000 elected people in Europe representing hunters. So that's really at the regional and local levels. I even think in Ireland, you have a thousand local hunting clubs. You have 70 or 80, you know, clubs involved with hunting with hounds. You, you know, you have X number of coursing clubs. All of these have a, a board or a committee, et cetera. So it's quite a lot of people. Uh, and then there's oh, almost three to three and a half thousand people employed in Europe working on hunting issues. Uh, France is our big country. So within France, you know, each region might have up to 20 staff and, and a budget much, much bigger than ours, for example. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, and some of our, you've a good few of our members would have over a hundred staff. And then you have some of our members that are quite small and they really depend on that voluntary, um, you know, nature. I think that's a kind of cultural thing in, in, in Ireland, for example, there's always a big network of volunteers, but across the NGO sector. Um, whereas I look at the amount of staff employed by our Dutch member or Danish member or Swedish member, or et cetera, it's quite a lot. And in some cases, the staff are within the regions and in some cases, the staff are all in the, in, in the head office. Um, but we, our, our members have a huge job, a huge program of work to do representing the interests of hunters at national level. Um, and we generally know what issues they're working on. Um, and the one thing that's interesting is that the amount of regulation that's coming from Brussels affecting the ordinary hunter. And when you take hunting and conservation, this is over 80% of the laws. And I often show this in presentations I give. I mean, the framework set for firearms is by the EU firearms directive, um, in terms of the birds you can hunt, when you can hunt them. That's set by the birds directive. The approach to large carnivore management is set under the habitats directive and behind that, the burn convention lead will be regulated by the reach regulation. And then the wider in environment, you know, you have, uh, for, we have some exciting things happening, but really the status of game in Europe is really set by our farming policy, the common agricultural policy, which is really bad for small game, but ungulates have done very well. Uh, and now we have some opportunities to try and fix things like an EU nature restoration regulation, which is something we're very much supporting, which is very polarized at the moment. Um, and our members are taking the same uh, approaches at at national level. And in some countries, there's, I would say, we call them unnecessary problems. The Netherlands is a country that is a very much restricted framework when it comes to 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 their hunting laws. And yet it's a country that's very flexible if you look at other parts of Dutch culture. So it's, so it's always quite, quite interesting to me. And then, um, we have more challenges in terms of, um, the direction we're going in general, we're trying to solve a biodiversity and climate crisis. Uh, and of course we're a big part of this and we're really part of the solution when it comes to, you know, local, uh, and in some cases, regional initiatives for putting conservation efforts in place. Hunting community does a lot. We assess this in our biodiversity manifesto. We have over 500 hunting-related conservation projects around Europe, and we really want to be seen more as partners. And we have a large campaign at the moment about, you know, work with us. Um, because our greatest threat, <clears throat> and it goes back to why our work on social acceptance is so important, 
is when we move away from taking science-based decisions to more ideological decisions, that's a real challenge. And that's why it's so important to work on social acceptance. And the classical case, which is a really tricky one to deal with, and I don't like putting the word trophy before hunting, but that's how it's packaged. You know, That's one thing where the peer-reviewed science is really going in one direction here, but you have you know, you have politicians that will take decisions that are more based on how I feel about this. And when that happens, we've, you know, we have more and more problems going forward. And the same types of things are happening uh, and, and the same challenges. And we see this when we survey our members each year. Generally, the same threats are along these lines. And going back to your very first question, we need to be stronger in, in, in communication. Um, we're always born out of having the facts. You know, some of our members, they really own all the data in their country when it comes to huntable species, like the Swedish, our Swedish member, for example. They have the facts and the government has to come to them and they give the facts and they're very comfortable talking about facts. But now they wake up and you read The Guardian and it's talking about their large carnivore management now as it's, this is trophy hunting and it's like, Jesus, yeah. how do you deal with that, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, so things are, it's, it's been able to change and been able to realize the kind of difficult terrain we will find ourselves in. As I said, I'm quite optimistic about, about the future. I think often the debate is very much one, it's caught in media or politics, but young people now, if you think about the Gen Z generation, they really want a future where you have a healthy environment and a healthy climate, and they want good food. And there's no reason why hunting cannot be communicated the way it the way it can be and the way it should be has been, you know, really addressing those challenges for 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 what the younger generation wants. So I think I'm quite um I think of course we 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 have some big challenges and we're gonna have some very new initiatives coming out of Brussels as well to try and set a framework for what is sustainable bird hunting to see where we go with large carnivore management and really to see can we actually solve the biodiversity problems in Europe. And this is a challenge. If we cannot deal with our nature restoration uh, proposal that's on the table that in general is a good proposal. I mean... Tell us a little bit more about it. Like, th th this is kind of a new thing that's going on. There's a lot of uh, push and pull as far as I can concern about this the nature restoration. Can you give us like a very quick update on this? Yes, it's last June. The commission presented its legal proposal and it's really to focus on, uh, well... It will be a regulation. When it's approved, member states will have to put in place uh, national restoration plans. And the focus, it's something we've been asking for for a very long time. So a really focus on degraded ecosystems and habitats. And the certain indicators that are used in the in the process, like the farmland bird index, uh, for example. And there are certain ecosystems that have been identified as important forests, agro, uh, wetlands, urban. And there's a real fear at the moment from um, certain sectors that the timing is bad and we have other big issues to deal with, uh, like food security, for example, and, and the pace the pace of this is moving too fast and there's other initiatives on the table, for example, dealing with pesticides, etc. And it looks like, um, well, yeah, yeah, we can see the position of the um, EPP, which is the large political group. Um, they're not in favor or else we'll push it towards just restricting it to Natura 2000, for example. Um, our view is that uh, from the perspective of really small wild game populations in Europe that are doing very badly and biodiversity in general, this is a good thing. 
Um, one of the challenges around this is that it's not well understood. Uh, we've talked to a lot of MEPs. It's not well understood by MEPs. It's not well under, un, 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 understood by many. I think it's a job for the commission to try to clarify that. And you can see the uh, environment commissioner, if you follow him on Twitter, is actively communicating about this is what would happen if we have a restoration law in place. And don't get too concerned because you have considerable flexibility at national level for a national restoration plan to deliver. Um, so from our perspective, this needs to work. And we need to have a, a restoration law in place. Because one of the big threats we have from a hunting community um, is this loss of small wild game populations. We discussed this a few weeks ago in Bulgaria, linked to our members meeting. We had a conference with experts in the European Commission trying to bring back small game to Europe's farmland. And uh, one of the things that came out of that was the scope that exists with um, a good nature restoration law. Uh, we've also been quite uh, active on the common agricultural policy and the reforms over the year, in particular the last reform, there are some interesting things in the new CAP rules and a good national CAP strategic plan can deal with them. Like land eligibility, Ireland has taken advantage of this. You can have more ecological features on your farm than ever before without being penalized, etc. So there's opportunities there, but we need to get much more active at national level, as do other environmental organizations to put pressure on agricultural ministries and environment ministries. You know, this is a good thing we can do this in a way. <clears throat> and this is something I've seen on your podcast before. You know, you have a few of, you know, uh, experts, uh, myself included, we're really concerned. It's often the debate is really unhelpful and, and not very constructive. And it goes back to the challenge with, with Twitter as well, for example. Uh, it's really, you can really misinterpret things in a way that the whole problem with the cap are the farmers, but it's not, it's actual policy and, 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 and things can really get messy and you really lose, lose the message, you know, and we discussed this in Bulgaria and we had farmers in the room and it's really, it's the good policy to bring everyone along, you know, most of the land, 70% is in private ownership in, in Europe, you know, you really have to incentivize and bring the farming community with you and the landowning community in general, hunters are quite close to these groups at national level. Some countries, you have a quarter of the hunters are farmers and vice versa. Um, yes. So this, this, this is something, um, so it's, it's quite a messy debate right now, but we need to make noise and we need to show our support. I mean, we will land our European hunters campaign on the 6th of June. Uh, we'll probably have close or more to 300,000 signatures. And one of our requests here is for, we want a good nature restoration law. So I, I, I've drifted a bit. It's it's on a little bit of a knife edge. Um, uh, we're pushing to have a good law in place because that's that's what we need for small game and biodiversity uh, or else we have bigger problems to deal with in the future and something else will break. My own feel, if I tried to step back and look at this over, over a beer, I just think that unless we fix some of these things now, something bigger will, will, will have to go in the future that will really affect a sector. Um, you know, and you have to do things right. I mean, look at the Netherlands, for example, and what happened politically there when they tried to make a move on nitrates. I think if you're, there's a way to do things to bring the relevant stakeholders with you. If you're talking about producing for decades and then you make a switch overnight, or at least it's portrayed that way, and then you have all of your provincial uh, elections go a completely opposite direction. Um, so regulators have to be careful. 
we all have a responsibility to to take things you know in a mature way to the future and, and debate things um and we need space to have those debates um that's why your podcast is useful i, I really i enjoyed you had a uh, ariel brunner from from uh bird life europe on as well i you know that, that was that, that was really good really really interesting um so it's good you know this is one way we can explain things in a, a little bit more of a kind of a camera way mm. but um it's hard yeah. that way in, in in public on on social media for example yeah yeah no i'm you know i i, I definitely moving a lot of discussions uh maybe not moving but limiting them to have them on the podcast and not on social media because of everything that you mentioned and uh yeah and by the way i i think i uh i first um kind of had like a better understanding what ariel is doing on one of the face events that i attended he, he was there so so that was uh, yeah he, he, we have a we have a partnership we have a um a very long time we have a, an agreement with bird life under one of the sustainable hunting initiatives and um we're we're around the table with them on all policy discussions related to hunting and, and conservation and environmental policy um and uh you know the classical event that we'll organize in the european parliament we will have bird life there to give their perspective too and and um, i think in many cases we're on the same page in what we're calling for we have different approaches and how we call for things um but uh, and that's the case it's the same as i mentioned we have a diverse europe um you find that in in many other european countries as well there's a huge amount in common with what the hunting community actually wants and uh what let's say the classical uh, in, exactly in the exactly we need to work together um uh, david just to wrap this thing up um i would like you to leave uh, the, our listeners, especially hunters who are listening to that, with some words of wisdom about how to how to communicate, how to talk about hunting, you know, how to be a good hunter in the challenging media environment that we have to ensure the you know public acceptance in the future of hunting. I think we're going down the road of making the hunting community aware that each hunter is an ambassador for hunting um, and that's something that some of our members have been doing for a long time so really encouraging hunters to talk about hunting in the you know over lunch in your workplace um, share game meat talk about the hunting experience um, you know this this social dimensions as well um, and I think our work in the future will go down this road of trying to make Europe's 7 million hunters be good ambassadors for hunting because we're making a, an important contribution to conservation. Uh, there's an important social, cultural, economic contribution too, also with food, game meat, etc. And it's really going to be the need to talk about these things. And then we find ourselves having a lot in common um, with those that may not uh really understand hunting that well it's often the our largest member uh willie shran president of fnc he always says we don't have to defend hunting we have to explain it um and i think we have to get that mindset into uh the hunting community globally that we can be huge ambassadors for hunting and the other point is there's hunters everywhere um everywhere in every line of work at, at all sorts of levels as well 
the more they talk, um, be be good ambassadors for hunting. And we we have some super ambassadors um, for for hunting out there. But in many cases, my wife is German, and uh, I meet some of her friends in in her workplace, and some of them very late in the evening they tell me I'm also a hunter as well. I'm like, great, oh, but I'm not that uh, vocal about it. I'm like, why not? You know, you have good food. You're managing a large ungulate population, etc. So it's um, I think it's a mindset thing. I think that's that's where we need to go for the future. I think we have huge um, scope there to make sure we have a strong future for hunting in Europe. David, that's uh, words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 